This is the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast. I'm Graham Shelby. I work in the Mayor's office. I'm joined now by Mayor Greg Fisher. How do you make Graham, always a pleasure. We're talking this time about bourbon. It's Bourbon Heritage Month. What is bourbonism, and, and, and where did that term come from in the first place? When I was running for mayor, you know, I'm a business guy. just happens to be mayor. And I'm like, what's the value proposition of the city? In other words, what's so unique about Louisville that people want to work here or live here? So every city should have some type of value proposition. So for us, it's starting to think about our economic development uh, clusters, if you will. What are those areas that we are better than anybody in the world? And there's several of those, advanced manufacturing, wellness and aging care, logistics and e-commerce, and food and beverage. And right in the middle of that food and beverage cluster, of course, is the bourbon industry. And it just baffled me why nobody was really promoting bourbon and bourbon tourism. It's authentically ours. It's got deep cultural roots in terms of an American story. People want those type of experiences. And to me, it was a kind of a high-end experience. So when we were talking about all this, I said, we should promote bourbon tourism. And then bourbonism just kind of splurted out. And from then, bourbonism was grown, and you know now uh, we are seeing huge growth in our hospitality industry. 24 million tourist visits last year. We've got about 25 hotels either under construction or planned to support both bourbonism and the expanded downtown convention center. I'm hoping it's helping with our airlift strategy, getting more air flights out of uh, Standardford Field. So it's really central to our hospitality uh, culture, if you will. It's also big in terms of job growth and a temporary spot for kids out of college to land in the hospitality industry while they find what their next career would be. So, And then at last, it really allows our restaurants to overpunch for the weight in a medium-sized city. That's why you see Louisville restaurants always among the top 10 best cities in the country and the world for eating scenes. So you put together local food, Great restaurants with bourbon heritage and all the bourbon characters that we have and great bourbon. That is bourbonism. All right. So it's sort of like how Nashville has built up its economy to an extent around its music scene. Louisville is working to build up its economy and identity around bourbon. That's part of it. It's, it's nowhere nearly as consequential from a, a GDP percentage as, let's say, music is for Nashville. But People think about different cities for different things. And with bourbon, you know, you've got to be somewhat careful. I'm not saying, you know, come to Louisville and drink a lot of bourbon. You know, it's come to Louisville, experience what this bourbon lifestyle is around food, around culture, and, of course, great spirits as well. we got a lot of great companies in our city, in this whole region of Kentucky, uh, and great distillery experiences, micro distillery experiences, urban bourbon trail. So you know, what it's done for tourism in our city, we never had a year-round tourism experience before. It was always event-driven, like Churchill Downs or the Ryder Cup. Now people are coming 365 days a year, which is good for the business of the city. What have you learned about bourbon since you took this on? I know a lot about bourbon, more than any mayor in the world, I bet. <laughs> so it's, what's fun is it's an industry full of characters, uh, full of folklore, a uh, lot of good history to it, a uh, lot of good chemistry to it, distilling to it, uh, and people are coming from everywhere. Now, one of the uh, funner things I was able to do, you know, as mayor, you get to proclaim things just because of the power of the mayor's office, which I always felt a little uncomfortable with that, you know. But I've gotten used to it quite a bit. So, you know, I proclaimed 
that the old-fashioned be the official cocktail of Louisville. So occasionally some of our uh, leisure riders will go on field trips to see where the best old-fashions are in our city and report back on that. And, you know, that's just a way of if somebody comes in from out of town. I was just with somebody an hour ago from out of town media, and I said, you know, have you had any bourbon? You know, and they're like, well, I've heard I need to have that if I come to Louisville. What would you suggest? You know, so I give a few suggestions. But I said, you know, have one of the official cocktail of Louisville, and that's the old-fashioned. So I've learned a lot about old-fashions. We talked about the economic importance of bourbon. Do you have any statistics that illustrate that, just so people get a handle on what it actually means to Louisville and Kentucky as an industry? I mean, payroll for bourbon is approaching a billion dollars for the bourbon industry in uh, Kentucky. Uh, about $8 billion have been invested in the past decade or so in terms of facilities. Interestingly, the average bourbon tourist uh, spends about $1,200 on their visit here. So typically these are, you know, like uh, three, four, five-star tourists that are coming to town that have disposable income. So it's a nice space for us to be in. And of course, we like to think of ourselves as the trailhead here in Louisville where people are flying in and they go out on the bourbon trail itself 50 plus stops on that over a million visitors last year i think that's well on its way to a couple million Uh, what's encouraging to me from an economic standpoint is i think we're still very early in the game you know we're in baseball season right now so i think we're in the second or third inning of the long-term bourbonism game and then lastly bourbon has 10 percent of the global market share is scotch so when you think about the growth prospects behind bourbon it's really exciting. So that means wonderful things for Louisville and wonderful things for Kentucky since 95% of the world's bourbon comes from Kentucky. And you know what the other 5% is, don't you, Graham? It's counterfeit. Counterfeit. Thank you very much. And you should avoid it. Yes, yes. You've heard me say that over 100 times. <laughs> Funnier every time. Um, <laughs> are there ways that Louisville and Kentucky could take e- even greater advantage of the opportunities that bourbon offers? Oh, I think this is something that grows organically, right? It needs to be authentic. And with uh, the growth that we've had, with the work that the Kentucky Distillery Association has had, uh, to me it's growing at a really nice, high-quality pace. When people talk to me about their bourbonism experiences here, their expectations are seems like almost always exceeded. So they come in thinking this is going to be interesting, but then they have these really high-quality experiences in our restaurants, in our distilleries, uh, learning about the history. It could be some of the food, like bourbon chocolates and stuff like this. So they're just kind of really amazed by it all. So I think that gives us really great encouragement for the where all this is heading for us. And then, of course, you know, when you go locally, you see some of the impact of the companies. Uh, Brown Foreman, for instance, has been a huge contributor to the arts and quality of life uh, environment issues in our city. Last week, I was in an event where Heaven Hill uh, gave a nice civic contribution to Simmons College. Uh, the list goes on and on. You can take a look at what Makers Mark and Bill Samuels and Rob Samuels have done kind of for marketing and creativity. And you see these high-end micro distilleries entering the market right now, Michter's, Angel's Envy. I'm going to leave people off, which will upset some folks. But, you know, there's just so many positive, fun ways that people are involved. we got the big guy here, Jim Beam, you know, who's at 4th Street Live, and then their distillery is the closest one to town. So there's something for everybody. And what's interesting is bourbonism has turned into 
before what might have been a single visit to a single place to where literally you can come now and have a really full weekend or a really full week. Uh, they could be tasting bourbon and food. It could be getting out on your bicycle. It could be chocolates. It could be history. It could be shopping. So it's really developing nicely for us in terms of a, a tourism destination strategy. When you give gifts to visiting dignitaries, people like that, you give bourbon sometimes too. Bourbon's a popular gift. Obviously, you're not going to get it authentically from any other place in the country. So the question then is, what kind of bourbon do you give? Because we obviously have lots of choices here. And so typically what we do is just send out a message to a couple of the distilleries that we've got a guest coming in. Would anybody like to help us greet this guest? And invariably, somebody will come forward with a nice bottle, sometime a commemorative bottle of some type that sends a nice welcoming message to our guest. What did you give to President Obama when he came a couple of years ago? This was one of the funniest things. Okay, what do you give to the President of the United States? So what's distinctly ours? Definitely bourbon, okay? So I turned to the Kentucky Distillery Association for this critical decision. It was too much for any one person to make on their own. What was their choice? Not one bourbon, but probably 12 to 15 bourbons that literally were delivered to my office in what looked like a treasure chest from a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So we have to transport this thing over to the location where the president's going to be. The Secret Service, of course, wants to closely investigate these spirits for not sure what their motive was. But when it was in the room where we met with the president, all the bourbon was accounted for. Now, the president was exhilarated, I think is probably, and surprised was the word when he saw this. He had never been presented with a treasure trove of any type of uh, level like this. And as he came out and began his speech, he was still kind of speechless over this whole thing. And he started his greetings with a big note of appreciation for this tremendous, and he spreads his arms out, uh, amount of bourbon that he received. And so I'm wondering, well, that, that was kind of funny. But then the funniest thing was one of the last pictures of the president leaving. You know, you see him getting up on the stairs to Air Force One, waving to everybody. There's another set of stairs in the back. And if you look closely, and I have a picture of this, there is a person carrying up the treasure chest of bourbon up the back steps of Air Force One. What else do we need to know about bourbon? Well, I do want to, on a serious note, just say, you know, too much of anything is bad for you. And obviously, uh, the spirits industry is very uh, focused on responsible drinking. So I don't want that to be lost in this whole message that's taking place here. So, and, uh, you know, when I'm out and about as mayor, you know, I drink water. You know, occasionally I'll have a little sip for quality control purposes, uh, but I just encourage everybody to remember, drink responsibly, certainly drive responsibly as you're enjoying this great spirit of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Thank you very much. It's good being with you. Louisville Mayor uh, Greg Fisher, who not only gave me a, a, a slugger, but also uh, a really big suitcase full of bourbon. I mean, it's a really big case. Michael Veach is a writer and historian who specializes in bourbon. He's a member of the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame and the author of Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. Michael, thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure. So right now, today, bourbon is going through a huge boom. 
Um, but over the course of its, you know, roughly 200 years or so history, I imagine it's gone through multiple cycles like this. Is what we're seeing today similar to other cycles it's been through in the past? I don't think we've ever seen it quite like it is today. Uh, there have been ups and downs in the industry uh, all through its history. A lot of different things change. You got a lot of different factors um, that cause the ups and downs, overproduction. Uh, uh, you know, back in the 1780s and 90s, there was no distinction between straight whiskey and blended whiskey. So you had a lot of uh, rectifiers out there putting uh, blended whiskey out there as bourbon and driving the price down and driving its reputation down. Um, you know, and then you start seeing a growth of bourbon after the Bottled and Bond Act of 17, or 1897, and then the Pure Food and Drug Act of uh, 1906. You see those things help define what is straight whiskey, and you start seeing straight whiskey growing. Um, what happened in the 60s is that you had the industry that had overproduced in the 1950s. They were keeping the price of bourbon artificially low. Uh, cheapening the reputation, you know, making it to where people were saying, you know, a lot of people equate, you know, the price you pay for a bottle with the better quality and you're paying a lot more for scotch, so that must be the good stuff. Bourbon is the cheap stuff. Um, you had a generation that wasn't going to drink whiskey because they were rebelling against their parents um, in the 60s. They were drinking things like vodka and tequila beer and wine. They just weren't drinking whiskey. Um, and then to make things even uh, uh, worse for the bourbon industry, you had the uh, uh, campaigns beginning to form against drunk driving and uh, Smirnoff came out with a ad campaign that drove uh, uh, vodka sales through the ceiling and that was that it leaves you breathless. In other words, you could drink it and they couldn't smell it on your breath. So you got all these different things that are, are driving down uh, bourbon sales. And really what brings bourbon sales back starts in the mid-70s when the scotch industry, who was also suffering because it was a whiskey, and like I said, people didn't want to drink what their parents drank, which was whiskey, um, they decided to introduce single malt scotch whiskeys in force in the United States. There had been a few single malt scotch, scotch whiskeys already here, but they wanted to bring in a whole bunch of others. And to do that, they wanted to show people that whiskey could be drank for flavor. It wasn't just something that you knocked back real quick in a shot or you had to mix in a, you know, in a cocktail so you didn't have any flavor at all left to drink. So they started doing things uh, like having uh, scotch whiskey and cheese pairings and scotch whiskey dinners and scotch whiskey and cigar pairings and, and all these type things and proving that scotch whiskey, the single malt scotches, could uh, be enjoyed for their own flavor on their own. Well, the bourbon industry in the 80s caught on to that and started coming out with things like single barrel, small batch, 
extra aged products uh, showing that bourbon too could be enjoyed for its flavor. Who are some of the most memorable characters from the history of bourbon in Louisville? Bourbon in Louisville, now that's a good question. There's a lot of uh, 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 great characters in the bourbon industry. You know, and it really depends on how you want to define Louisville as well. Uh, I personally think uh, Isaac Wolf Bernheim is a great character, but he's, you know, of course, originally from Germany and uh, started business in Paducah, but then came to Louisville in the 1880s and uh, ended up giving a lot of things to the city of Louisville and the state of Kentucky. Uh, Great person, uh, community activist. You know, he was uh, uh, involved in getting the uh, the Young Men's Hebrew Association started here in Louisville and getting the building for him. Uh, he paid for the statue of Jefferson out here in front of the uh, the courthouse. Uh, he most famously uh, has Burnham Forest outside of the city of Louisville. Uh, he actually paid for the two statues that Kentucky has in the uh, rotunda at the uh, Capitol in Washington, D.C. He was horrified to find out Kentuckians had never put a statue up in the rotunda. So he had a contest uh, to pick two Kentuckians to put in there and um, paid for the statues. So, I mean, he was a very uh, uh, interesting character. What do you think are the factors that contribute to the tremendous growth in the popularity of bourbon over the last 30 years or so? Well, you know, you have the birth of the, what they call the super premium products, the single barrel, small batch, extra aged products. You know, single barrel really isn't anything new. You know, in the 19th century, all bourbon was single barrel because you didn't bottle bourbon. You know, you took your own flask or your jug to the uh, liquor store and you got your whiskey filled right out of the barrel. Uh, glass was expensive. It wasn't until the 1890s that glass prices, uh, machine-blown glass bottles, became cheap enough that distillers could bottle their own product. So single-barrel products weren't anything new in the 1980s when... Um, uh, ancient Age, now Buffalo Trace, introduces Blanton's. You know, there were other products out there that were already single barrel. Old Overholt and uh, uh, Old Forester both had single barrel offerings, but the difference is they never emphasized the fact that you were getting your own single barrel in their advertising. You know, and it took Ancient Age uh, to take the Blantons and emphasize the single barrel qualities and um, make that a selling point. Well, the small batch are sort of the same thing. Um, you know, Booker Knoll didn't like single barrels because it was, they were, are by definition inconsistent. No two barrels are exactly alike. So he wanted to uh, release small batch bourbon so he could get consistency out of it. So he introduced that. And then, of course, you've got the uh, uh, 
the phenomenon with Pappy Van Winkle when Julian introduced uh, uh, Pappy 20 in the early 90s and it won all those awards. Now there had been aged whiskeys long before Pappy Van Winkle, but um, they weren't as aged as 20 years. Part of that had to do with our tax system. The whiskey goes into a bonded warehouse and you don't pay your taxes on it until you take it out and bottle it. Well, up until 1958, that bonding period was eight years. So after eight years, you took the whiskey out, paid your taxes, and bottled it. You didn't sit, let it sit around for 10, 12, 20 years. Uh, in 58, though, they increased the bonding period to 20 years. So you begin to see older whiskeys, and Julian's uh, success with the 20-year-old Pappy uh, created even more interest. So you got all these things coming in. Then you've got the uh, uh, birth of bourbon tourism, which uh, comes with the uh, the bourbon festival down in Bardstown. Uh, uh, what generally happened is people would come to the bourbon festival hoping to learn more about bourbon and find out that Bardstown idea of a bourbon festival was a Catholic picnic paid for by the uh, bourbon industry. <laughs> they'd get down there, they'd tour the Getz Museum and they say, okay, what else can we learn about bourbon? And they say, and their answer was, well, you can go to the beer garden and drink your bourbon and listen to the music. So they started heading out to distilleries to learn more about their favorite brands. And um, uh, the distilleries, as a result, uh, started building visitor centers. And then they put together the, um, uh, the bourbon trail in the late 90s with a passport system and people started doing that, going to all the different distilleries and getting their passport stamped. So that helped grow. Uh, then you had the internet. You know, you started seeing websites out there dedicated to bourbon. You started seeing forums where people from all over the world could come together and talk about bourbon. You know, something that had never happened in history before. Um, so you got all this new interest through that. Uh, you take all these things and throw them together with publications. You know, you start having magazines that are writing articles about bourbon and whiskey. Um, you get books coming out on bourbon. Uh, throw all these things together and you just have a slow growth in the um, in the sales until uh, eventually it kind of reached a critical mass and just really exploded and it's where we are today. The industry's still trying to catch up. They never dreamed that we would be selling bourbon like this 10 years ago. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the shortage that we have. Uh, so right now we're seeing the rebirth of Whiskey Row. Talk about the birth of Whiskey Row. Well, Whiskey Row was important uh, what people don't realize, what most people don't realize is, is that Whiskey Row was more than just that little block between 1st and 2nd Street. Whiskey Row was Main Street between about Brook and 10th, and uh, not just Main Street, but also Market Street and, uh, uh, oh, what was the other street closer to Water Street, I believe, and all the roads in between. There were at any one time, an average of about 50 different whiskey companies here in Louisville. And the reason was is that they needed to come to Louisville for communication. 
Louisville was the center of communication in Kentucky. If you had a distillery in Nelson County or Anderson County, you still came to Louisville because it was easier to get people in and out on the steamboats here. And then later, the L&N Railroad made it a center of the uh, railroad. So it was easier for you to get people in to come in and look at your product to buy it. It was easier for you to get your product to market. So all these buildings on Whiskey Row were not distilleries. They were sales offices. What happened to Louisville during Prohibition? Oh, as far as the whiskey industry is concerned, uh, it pretty much died. It, it killed Whiskey Row. You know, at the end of Whiskey Row, you didn't need that center for transportation because of the invention of the automobile. It was easier to get people out to your uh, uh, distillery and such. But in Louisville during Prohibition, you know, you had Brown Foreman, you had Frankfurt Distilleries, uh, you had uh, uh, James Thompson Brother, which was later uh, Glenmore. Um, and you had um, the Arthur Phillips Stitzel Distillery, all located here in Louisville selling medicinal whiskey. Medicinal whiskey. Right. Yeah, you could get a, pint, a prescription for one pint of uh, uh, 100 proof spirits every 10 days. So they were supplying the pharmacies. But not at the same rate as they'd supplied recreational customers before. Oh, that. no. No, I mean... You're looking at probably one twentieth of the volume uh, they were compared to what they were doing before prohibition. Michael Veach is a writer and historian. He's the author of Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Bourbonism edition of the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast. You can check out the Kentucky Bourbon Festival happening through Sunday, September seventeenth, in Bardstown. You can check out the inaugural Bourbon and Beyond Festival September 23rd and 24th here in Louisville. You can subscribe to the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, wherever you get podcasts. And you can keep up with the mayor himself online. He's in constant motion through Facebook, Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Graham Shelby. Thanks for listening to the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast.